First Times by Mark Lewis. He held the saddle from behind, pushed hard, screaming love in my ear as I pedalled with fury and childish hopes of not crashing to the hard sand. Sloping over in still motion, the beach came up and hit me on the head anyway. I cried with disappointment. I didn't try again for a long time. She held the ball of twine bound hard around the stick. I ran out the end and swung the lead and lugwormed hook over my head like I'd seen the men before. Three times it zizzed and I let it fly seaward. She wasn't concentrating and let slip the stick and line arcing into the grey water and my hard, saved pocket money with it. I cried disappointed. I didn't try again for a long time. A Christmas Eve pub crawl at sixteen. A long-haul call into snugs galore. A circular route to midnight mass with friends. Many pints elbowed long and laughing. Six altars circulated in front of my eyes. The priest swayed, green-cloaked before me. I bounced off communicants to reach the car park and emptied my acid bile on somebody else's bonnet. I wasn't disappointed. I couldn't remember how. I didn't try again for a long time. She offered herself to me in the dunes. I squirmed on top of her, clothed, kissing, holding fast, worrying what to do next. I came in my jeans while trying to take hers off. I discovered too late limp dicks enter nowhere whatever the encouragement and signs of impatience make jelly knobs smaller. I didn't cry, but ran away to a darkened room with music and stayed there all that summer. I didn't try again for a long time. When thoughts come swimming back through disappointments since, there has been none so clear, so shivering hard and sad, like laughing demons biting my ear. I won't try again for a long time. The Lighthouse at Burnham by Mark Lewis And so... The river brew into the river parrot, into the river estuary that swirls and curves and eddies over the sinkholes and whirlpools and crashes into the river Severn and blows out of the Bristol Channel and back again twice a day. The fastest tidal race in Europe, this mud-bordered waste, land of blue nylon, cork, bloated dogs and pink plastic, and shark-chewed chairs hides a lonely white sentinel Faded in its grey mist, dark brown waters, not Caribbean blue. Four-square, clapper-boarded, stout-legged, black-tarred base, one-eyed soldier, saviour of salty souls for a hundred years. The Burnham Lighthouse stands, shoulders back, head aloft, facing front across the rough-grained shore, dark-wet, contoured from bullying waves, making a point, lined up with its more elegant cousin inland on the posh house road. Stone-built, curved, taller, more of a lighthouse's lighthouse. But without the stub on the beach, where would she be? Linda Lighthouse, mistress of the night. Line up Linda and stub, you enter the estuary safe. If not, if not, if not and the mud sucks you stuck like the best rubber on rubber, vacuumed silt shut, sodden, odours of rot and rotting, sewage and seaweed. 
But the mud horse skims sure these wastes, holding true lines on dangerous curves, held fast by strong arms of families on families, on families familiar with the tides, turning safe against the ebb and black cold waters, loaded with gifts of eels, shrimps, winged skates, and slippered soles, good eating with dark butter, flat parsley and steamed sea kale, one eye on the blink of stub and Linda takes them home. These foragers of ages, blindfolded, away from the leaning nets waiting to submerge again, against the salt sea offering more gifts tomorrow, colder maybe. And so... Shores and Shorelines by Mark Lewis Sam Shaw opens one eye and tries to focus. It might be morning, but he isn't sure. He is sure he's got a bad crick in his neck. Sleeping face down on the empty bed frame was not a good idea. A faded blue tattoo of Beethoven twitches across his back. He turns over slowly and looks around at the peeling wallpaper, the cardboard stuck in the window, and the lonely light bulb in the middle of the ceiling. Christ, he says. He takes a deep breath and remembers where he is. He pulls his coat around him and sits up slowly. He picks up the empty bottle of scotch at his feet and creaks downstairs. Halfway through his cup of tea, he looks around the neglected kitchen. This was his first trip home in many years, and he wonders if it was a good idea. He arrived as the only passenger on the last bus up the valley the night before. It was Friday. There was nothing to see but the dark streaks across the bus window. The town of Pengard was never much to talk about, even in the good times, before his parents died and left him the house, before his army days, before his wild years, as he called them. Pengard is at the end of the line before the Brecon beacons. People come to look and wonder, but always move on quickly up the mountain to something more seemly. The pithead has gone. The half-street is half-boarded and the flagstones are broken. This tired town is crumbling back to form the quarries of its birth. With a couple of exceptions, the people are crumbling too, head-bowed and grey-skinned against the sloping streets of wind and rain. The start of every weekend is always two buckets wetter and three times colder than anywhere off the mountain, they say. But that has never stopped the local cherubs with their short skirts and stilettos, and the boys with the brand new t-shirts and trainers, summer or winter, roaming the town looking for laughs and kebabs and a shag to finish. The valley youth marching together for a grand tour of abuse and blood and falling down, and a good time had by all, if only they could remember. And in the thick of it is Billy Michael, a shaven-headed twenty-five-year-old tattooed with valley boy and lover, and I'll fight you till I die and earring twice to finish. Billy likes to drink his usual several pints and wait for all comers in the middle of the square. This is his theatre. The high-heeled girls sidestep the vomit and chicken boxes and stand in corners, fagging and screaming encouragement as the boys roll and bite and cuddle each other in the red-soaked rain, fingerings flashing under the neon and the steam and Billy holds vicious court to his left, his right, 
with boot and knee, and he smiles all the time, almost singing as he drops one more soul down to the gutter. To finish with a quick crack tap from his head, a kind of badge of ownership to the cheekbone of another unfortunate, hoping to make his name as he's welcome to Billy's Friday Night Valley Carnival Stop Tap Jamboree. The Clarion is a barn of a place on the town square. In the past, the pride of top-hatted steelmen and coal magnates. A grand palace built for congregation and education. Now, on a Friday, it's just a rough pub full of screams and shouts and alcopops and snogging overlooking the war memorial. And in the middle of this party, Sam descended from his wheezing bus. As he stepped onto the pavement, a beer-soaked huddle of rowdy youth rumbled by. Sam got sideswiped with no intent and was on his backside in a moment. Only one heard his cursing and saw his fall. Billy turned back for a moment to look at the old bugger on the floor. He saw a bundle of a man rocking like a downed rhino. Billy nearly moved towards him, but more important business dragged him off. Sam thinks the kitchen looks shit, but why should ten years of tenants care? Then the pain rotting his guts doubles him up and he holds on for its passing, more frequent now. He tries to breathe deeply, as he's been told, and wonders if he should care either. Sam slaps his face and finishes his lukewarm tea. The clarion is a different kind of place in the day. Fag smoke still seeps from the brickwork and the nicotine ceiling drips on your head, but there are only cards and dominoes, clack-slap and a clearing of throats and mumbles. Sam nudges in for a pint and, after his order, takes in the room. He feels no threat as cracked faces look his way, wondering. There's nobody he knows, but there is a familiar taste in the air. He asks the barman about a name, anybody who does a bit of painting and stuff, and a croak comes from amidst the dominoes. Billy's your boy? Billy. My girl with nods and grunts in agreement. Give me your address and I'll let him know. Right, says Sam, clack slap. In the front room of his house, Sam opens one of a few boxes he'd sent ahead. He puts a photo on the mantelpiece. It's a photo frame of him and Betty, the one good thing he had, taken away too soon. Sam carefully unwraps some cotton wool and takes out a gold tie pin encrusted with turquoise and pearls. He sticks it into the frame, steps back and looks at it carefully as the doorbell rings. Sam invites Billy in. You look familiar. I might be, says Billy. Drink? Ta. The beers go down well as Billy looks around at the work in front of him and Sam looks around at Billy. Sam rubs his own head and asks Billy if he gets cold in the window with a shaved head. And Billy stares for a moment and breaks a smile and says, well, I usually wear a cap. Quite fancy that myself. Fresh in the wind and uh, I don't have far to go, says Sam, rubbing his own head once more. Do you shave it yourself? Cheaper, says Billy. What I want, Billy, is a basic paint job right through. Clean it up. What do you think? No problem. Colours? Keep it simple, eh? Magnolia? Money? A hundred. Oh, you'll get more than that. A day. Christ. 
So Sam learns quickly how all those things that seemed not to have changed have changed a lot. And this mountaintop was, of course, a part of the world, and how much of an old fart he had become thinking back to when and how, and how it was so lovely. Bollocks. So the deal was done, and it would take a couple of weeks, and Billy would start the next day. It's a Sunday. When I get going, I get going, says Billy, and I've nothing better on. Fair enough, says Sam, and they take two more beers as Billy looks at the photo on the mantelpiece. Nice-looking lady. Yes, says Sam. You married? Billy pauses but doesn't pry. Nope. Kids? Around. Uh, Look after them, mind. I do, says Billy. Good for you, says Sam. Sam gets fifty quid out of his wallet and some house keys from his pocket. Here's a sub and the keys, and there'll be more for materials by Monday. No problem, says Billy as Sam puts the money and keys into Billy's hands. Sam looks into Billy's eyes and Billy does the same. Sam smiles and says, see you tomorrow. And so you will, says Billy as he crosses to the door. Billy looks back at Sam for a moment and nods. The days pass well and the house starts to look like a home and Billy works on and Sam moves around and... New friends are found that went with the old, and the old world turns warmly in Sam's fearsome late days. And laughter is found to take the edge off, in the pub mostly, and old yarns taken apart and represented with other views. Billy is hard at it when a couple of head cases come a-calling. Craig and Chewie creep up on Billy while the radio plays loudly in his ears, and Craig grabs Billy tight round the throat. Everything you've got, I'll break your fucking neck. Billy moves fast with feet and hands and lashes wildly to some ferocious effect. And through the pain, Craig screams. Christ beneath! Fucking joke! Some joke, you ass. Only I'm gonna laugh! You've buggered my arm! Billy looks at the idiot pair, a bit younger than himself. Those peripheral boys on the edge of every group not quite having what it takes and dreaming of greater deeds of the wrong kind of fame. What do you twats want? Just saying hello, says Chewie, rubbing his leg and trying to smile. Why don't I believe you, says Billy. Cup of tea, was Chewie's reply. Clear up this mess, says Billy, as he goes out the back to put the kettle on. Who's this place anyway, says Craig. Some old boy, shouts Billy from the kitchen. Anything worth nicking? Billy walks back in with the mugs. Yeah, right. Now have your teas and fuck off. Billy's shopping from cost cutters wasn't special, but it's okay. He's not a tin and packet man, as he's taken time to learn. To stay fit for his Friday nights, he's learned to look after himself properly. His social worker thinks Billy has problems a lifetime won't work out because Billy likes to fight. He's not mad or uncontrolled. On a Friday night, he's very controlled indeed. He just likes the challenge and the pain. He's no different to anybody else except in the fact that the pain doesn't matter, or that it does, but in a good way. Like Christ on the cross. Catch him right and he can talk for hours on the subject, but right now he wants to go home with his shopping. Then Sam pops up in the street. All right, Sam. No. 
What? How's it going? Good. Be finished in a couple of days. So, uh, what do I owe you? Says Sam. It'll be about four days, says Billy. Well, that's a start, comes the reply. But you owe me much more than that. How come, says Billy, as Sam presses in on him. Where's the pin? What pin? The tie pin on the photo. Oh, that? Oh, is it lost? I haven't lost it for thirty fucking years, you shit, screams Sam, spitting in Billy's face. Sam lunges and lashes angrily, and Billy steps back and in again and holds the old man easily and tight and Sam cries with frustration, and his breathing runs out. Billy releases Sam slowly, and Sam slumps to the wall. Sam looks up and says, I'm disappointed, Billy. There is only the sound of breathing, and then Billy turns home for his tea. Later that evening there's a knock on Sam's door, and a young lad stands there shaking. Jesus Christ, you should have that seen to says Sam as the boy's face moves with a throbbing blue-black. What happened? Well over, says Craig. So come in and sit down and I'll get you some tea, says Sam. Craig holds out his hand and says, I found this and somebody said it was yours. Sam takes the type in from Craig's palm and looks into the swollen eyes for quite some time and Craig twists awkwardly, just wanting to be gone. Very kind. Thank you. That's okay, grunts Craig to the front of the closing door. Billy is sitting at the bar, staring at the bottom of his glass, and Sam slides in beside him and quietly orders two pints. Billy studies a mark on the wall as Sam takes a breath and drinks. I'm old. I'm prejudiced. And I'm a prat. Billy looks at the fresh pint in front of him. You've done a good job there, Billy. You've worked hard. I want you to finish. Billy drinks long and sets the pint down. First thing tomorrow, leave the money on the table, says Billy quietly. Okay. And so, says Sam. Billy turns to look at Sam for the first time. What do you see? The worst. Billy smiles and turns back to the bar, but I see the worst in everybody, continues Sam. It's like looking at myself. It's my job. I'm a bastard, and that's the way I operate. Look at this lot in here. I see the worst in all of them. Billy laughs. But I'm still here, and they don't bother me at all. <laughs> Tough old bugger, aren't you? Maybe once. Now it's just one foot in front of the other. And if they did kick the shit out of me, who'd notice? That's not self-pity, Billy, that's fact. And I wouldn't give a rat's ass. Billy looks at Sam carefully. Your eyes say different, he says, and Sam turns away and says, There may be some things. And Sam hides in the depths of his beer for a short breath. Too late for me, Billy, but what about you? Billy just stares away. No? Right, says Sam. 
I'm an interfering old dickhead with nothing else to do, and if I can upset somebody along the way, then better still. With a small twinkle in his eye, Sam finishes his drink. Billy runs his finger round the rim of his glass and says to no one in particular, Clouds of affection from our younger eyes conceal that emptiness which age descries. What? Now then, now I'm pissed. Sam twists on the stool to adjust his crotch and his discomfort and Billy mumbles. Secrets, Sam. Secrets. Right, says Sam as he stands up. Billy watches Sam swinging out into the night as the barman leans over. Old farts. Pain in the ass. Yeah, right, says Billy quietly. Maria by Mark Lewis Maria sat back in her chair, looked slowly around the crowded cafe, placed the palm of her hand over her heart and closed her eyes. From her corner seat by the counter, she didn't have to look to see what was there. This was her seat and her table. Everybody knew where to find her, right next to the brass and copper urn, polished to a mirror. Gianni had always insisted on that, clean and polished. He always thought like that, a Gianni, a good man who had worked hard all his life for his family and friends. He would spend hours polishing his shoes and telling the kids, no matter how poor you are, you can keep clean and tidy. You look down at a man's shoes and you can tell the person he is. If he takes care of his shoes, he will take care of himself, his family, and he will take good care of you. Maria often had big rows with Gianni over his generosity. You are too kind, you care too much, and they take advantage of you. Maria, cara mia, calma, calma. God has treated us well, and we must do the same. Yes, but God hasn't worked as hard as we have. Maria and Gianni bought the cafe in the late thirties. It wasn't so bad then, but it got harder later. They knew they couldn't blame those few frightened people, but thank God they weren't the majority. It had been tough through the war. Although they were naturalized by that time, half their families weren't. Gianni spent days traveling around internment and POW camps delivering food parcels to brothers and cousins less fortunate than themselves. He even managed to get some three-day passes for family members to visit at home. Maria's cousin Carlo, also naturalized, packed a suitcase one day and gave himself up for internment at the local police station. The sergeant, who knew him well, laughed and sent him home again, much to Carlo's frustration. All he wanted was to get away from a domineering mother and six fighting sisters. These were good memories. But there was also the racism, the bloody eye ties. Will it ever change? Only if we keep remembering, thought Maria. She looked again at the cafe in front of her in her mind. The formica tables and chairs are collector's items, she'd been told. 
What crazy people there are in the world. These tables were very cheap, but they had been looked after. Now the kids could sell them for a fortune. And why those film people want to come, I don't know. The zinc and yellow glass sunburst at the back of the counter is some special relic, apparently. The place was good when they first moved in, but Maria wanted to go with the modern times, but Gianni said, we just keep it clean and tidy and people will come. And so they did. After a while, the long days and hours and children made Maria too tired to worry about how the place looked, and so it never changed. And now strange young people all dressed like widows come to take photos. I understand nothing any more, thought Maria. Sitting in her corner, Maria snuggled down to the noises and smells around her. The spitting urn, the clank of cups and cutlery, the coffee, the burnt toast, the bacon and the sugal, her special secret recipe. Whatever fry-ups and steamed pud and two veg they put on offer, Gianni always insisted on the other good stuff from home, the ravioli, pasta, asciutta, minestra, the real thing. Not that awful commercial nonsense most people dish out now for too much money. And he was right. Enough people did appreciate it to make it worthwhile, but it was always more work for Maria. She knew he was right, but she could have kicked him at five in the morning, cold and aching, making sure everything was ready for the day. How different it is all now, quick this, quick that, easy buck, little care, ah, well, magari. Maria breathes again and turns an ear to old Betty in her usual place, nose dripping into her tea, and moaning about the weather and immigrants to anybody who'll pay attention. Nobody does. Those young working boys with their hard hats and fry-ups and sports pages taking up too much room with their long legs and dusty shoes. Good boys, really, but she'll have to mop up when they're gone. And if any bad language comes out, they will have to go sooner. Mostly they don't forget her rules. The lasagna is too good to miss. And those cackling office girls are okay with their salads, but her ears hurt sometimes with the screech of the laughter. Stied Zita, old woman, bless them. With the kids in charge these days, Maria takes her pleasure quietly in her corner and people come to visit. The priest, occasionally, usually on the scrounge for something or other, a donation, a trip, food for a party. Maria has made it clear to him that her tally upstairs must be such that she expects no queuing at the gates. She insists she will walk straight in and get a big hug from Gianni. Father just laughs, but doesn't disagree. Other friends come by with an ache or a pain in exchange for a remedy from the past, which somehow always works. Is it simply faith? Some come just to sit and gossip over a macchiato with a tot, or a deep glass of barolo that Maria keeps on the floor by her feet for the special ones. 
those oldest, dearest friends, the few left who really understand without talking. Too much talking these days anyway, yak, 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 with nothing to say. Those politicians are the worst. May God forgive them that their yak, yak, yakking kills people. Maria makes the sign of the cross and holds her hand together on her lap. Her eyes are still closed as she smiles. She nods to herself and breathes out gently, quietly, and sighs. Maria is brought up short when Ninian jumps into the space between her eyelids and the cafe window. These things can happen when you just want to relax, like a punishment for the wicked, she thought. Dear Ninian, Gianni was a good man, but Ninian was her love, too early, too young, and too different. In those days in the mining valleys, families kept to themselves and stayed with what they knew, the pit, the Bible, the church, and the language. Two young people crashed together in innocence and ignorance and dark prejudices rise. They do bad things for love and run and are returned to shame and humiliation and they can't survive and a small piece of the heart is closed forever. And life goes on. But in that piece of heart time does not heal, and hardness grows around it that sometimes can be seen in the world where compassion was expected and didn't come. I've not been a good mother or wife, thought Maria, shutting out the sounds of the café. And God forgive me, I've done some things. It was half an hour before anybody realized she was dead. It was quite normal for Maria to take a nap in the corner if nothing much was happening. Her grandson Paul had come from behind the counter to tell her father had arrived for a coffee. Paul shook her gently on her shoulder and Maria slumped slightly to the side against his legs. Paul was very shaken and was no use for the rest of the day. He was helped upstairs and hit a bottle of whiskey surrounded by boxes of Kleenex, fresh pastries, and hugs and shoulder rubs, while people phoned for other people to come, and carloads of family and worlds descended with tears and food and more tissues. Nobody expected more of Paul, firstborn of his generation, male, spoilt. Some traditions hold fast even today. He knew that he wouldn't have impressed his grandmother in the least, and she would be saying that he was always more like that soft grandfather of his, too sentimental for his own good. And she would be laughing to think the priest could actually make himself useful for once. Some of the older, wiser customers there that day talked about Maria timing this deliberately as they watched Father go down on his knees to give Maria extreme unction. And the few that knew crossed themselves, and some others spoke to their own gods, and some just ran, not able to cope with life showing its real self. And Maria just sat and smiled.
Those Bridges, That House by Mark Lewis The other one is white, the older one, slim, long, swinging smooth, an elegant slice through the river fog, still going strong, a beauty of its time, more beautiful now, reflecting sunbursts on dark days, bouncing off wet mud, sluicing the swirling eddies, fast tides. This one, a charm in its own way, sturdy, stouter, but pale-hued light, upright and sure to be trusted in high winds swerving eastward from the sea, high fence to protect our metallic sides if we bounce sideways off the curved black path, three-laned highway. Younger by far, this second seven bridge. And as I pass again this shorter route to dark mountains, there it is, that house standing starboard, my mind house, the Dickens, I say, with wet clouds crawling over the flats, three-story fantasy on the bank, stone-built, grey-weeping, a candle in the green glass-top window, yellow light reflecting those silent men, gartered, booted, tricorned against the hot-cheeked effort of shouldered booty brought ashore off clinkered skiffs, guns and powder, Madagascan vanilla, Jamaica rum, or some other runners, night moon men rubbing split hands close to hot coals whilst a red poker bubbles a pot of ale. Black slaves on black water pull hard on split oars, dripping quiet, perhaps. Stolen craft tied up, rotting otherwise. Ripples on ripples, tides turning in hope, escaping Bristol wharves or sucked into swirling pools. Would they care? Just smiling songs in the open air. And so I rub my eyes and pay my toll at the gate and drive towards Welsh rain. And we can choose at last, they said. <laughs>